So welcome, welcome to the story as we continue the story. We've been studying the story. In, in the story, what, we, what we're doing is taking a journey where we see how heaven's story and earth's story align. And in the last few weeks, we've been uh, working at the part of the story where Israel has left captivity, has returned to Jerusalem and to Israel, and is rebuilding the temple through Ezra. And today we'll talk about rebuilding the walls through, through Nehemiah. It's, a, it's an important story because it's very, very practical. I think you can identify with Nehemiah because <clears throat> Nehemiah is not a churchman. He's a guy who has a job. He, uh, he drinks wine for a living. Maybe some of you would like that job. Uh, I don't know, but that's, that's his job. He, he's, a, he's a food tester and a, and a wine bipper, uh, but he does it for a very important uh, person. Uh, but he, he engages that job for the purposes of the kingdom to bring about results that matter. He brings heaven's story to earth in a way that furthers God's story on the earth. And I want to invite each of you into that story because there's a tension when we live our lives that uh, Nehemiah shared. That tension is making a meaningful connection between our faith and the other 167 hours of our week. If you're like me, you have only 168 hours in a week. I don't know. If you've got more, let's talk because I could use a couple extra. But the difficulty that we often have is how we leverage those other 167 hours into kingdom prosperity. And sometimes we might dismiss our time at work, our time at school, our time uh, as a parent, our time in any other enterprise as irrelevant to Sunday morning or to the kingdom of God. But let me just, just in case we run out of time before I get there, let me tell you the end right up front. What you do, all the moments of your life, are the vital connection of heaven to earth. That's where the will of heaven is done on earth, is in your life at the marketplace where you serve. Now, I define the marketplace as the place where you come and go, where you live life, and you impact the culture around you. Now, we all do that. I'm not talking about uh, only if you have a certain kind of a job. We all do that. When we leave here today, we're going to uh, come and go. You've come. You're going to go. You're going to uh, live your life. And whatever you do, that's part of it. And you're going to impact culture. The choice we have to make is, are we going to impact culture positively or negatively? Are we going to bring, bring heaven into our culture right here on earth? And I'm voting yes on that one, okay? And I, my goal today, my purpose today, is to share a Nehemiah's seven-step process for rebuilding culture. And guess what? It involves people just like you. If you've got a pain, if you've got a yearning, if you've got a desire, whatever that is, consider how God is using that God has given it to you and wants to use that to bring heaven to earth. So join me in that, okay? Like Israel, we're in the confusion of survival very often. Uh, we lose clarity of who we are, what we do, and why that matters. We're kind of on a John Denver song. Uh, John Denver, you say? <laughs> Way back in the 60s, there was this really cool singer named John Denver. He wrote a song called On the Road. He says, we didn't know who we were. We didn't know what we did we were just a traveling on the road. Now, a lot of times my life is like that. I don't have any real goal. I don't have any, don't know where I've come from. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing. And, but I'm on the road. I know I'm doing something. I'm busy. Let's stop it. Let's make those road trips 
uh, journeys for God, okay? And, and I think that the seven processes that Nehemiah re- reveals might be useful to you. So if your full-time is not leading in the church, and I suspect for almost all of you that's the case, hopefully you can identify with Nehemiah in this very practical story of reaching into a broken society and restoring a community whose walls have been torn down and existed in the threat of its enemies. So we're going to do a couple of neat things. We're going to get in touch with who we are, what we do, and why that matters. So the important thing for Nehemiah, because he had those three qualities, he lived a life on purpose. Uh, He accomplished seemingly impossible things against seemingly impossible odds with seemingly inadequate resources in an impossibly short period of time. Now, that's what God has put you here for today. No matter where you are, there's something in your sphere of influence that God wants you to be a part, part of uh, rebuilding for him. So let's, let's, just, let's just do this thing, okay? We've got the tension, we've got the story set up. Let's, let's dig in here. Uh, like I said, uh, Nehemiah is after the 70 years of, of Israel's captivity, I guess I think is the, is the right term we'd use for that. They had been carried out of their homeland into slavery, into bondage for 70 years. They had been released. Ezra had gone home and built the temple. And we had some great temple time this morning. We, we lifted God's name. We, were, we worshiped. And that is awesome. That is energizing. The neat thing about it, the thing I love about Pete, Pete doesn't come here to worship. That may surprise you. It may not. Pete brings his worship here. This is who Pete is. And when we bring what we've been doing all week here, worship breaks out and God's glory is revealed. The sick are healed, the dead are raised, the lame walk, the blind see. The power of God comes through our hands and through our, uh, through our, our praises to the, to the earth. So let's, let's just step into that. Nehemiah's seven-step plan for shaping culture around you. Let's start off with chapter 1. Uh, Let's just start at the beginning, right? There's only 13 chapters, so it won't take too long. Uh, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakala, in the month of Kislev, now Kislev is about next week or so. That's the Jewish name for the months, and it starts about next week. So we're in that time of year. In the 20th year, I was in the citadel of Susa. So we find that Nehemiah is in Susa a long, long, long way, maybe six to 800 miles away from Jerusalem. So he's disconnected. Even though many have gone back to Israel and to Jerusalem to, to restart their lives, Nehemiah remains in uh, Persia. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with uh, some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant, that's those who had returned, that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. He had two burdens on his heart, the people that had returned and the city to which they had returned. So, uh, and he gets their report. See, what happens here, the very first step on your outline is he, be- he was alert. He began to listen. He, in his conversation with his brother, he heard the prompt. God is, what's God saying to you, and what are you going to do about it, right? That's the discipleship language we use in, in, at New City Church. So, he began to get the pain. In verse uh, 3, it says, they said to me, those who survived the exile, that's pretty tough work right there already, right? And are back in the province, are in great trouble. 
and disgrace. Two issues. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So they're in dire circumstances and they are a defeated people. Now, a lot of the places we live, the, the places we work, there's a lot of defeated people, right? They don't know who they are, they don't know what they do, they don't know why it matters, and they're living in disgrace, and they're living powerless lives. So, uh, but Nehemiah identified with their pain. And you can probably anticipate that God had put the pain of his own heart in Nehemiah about this situation, so that when he heard it from his brothers, he had that symbiotic response that said, this is what God's bringing to me. So he begins to dream, goes to step two, to develop the vision. So he continues this feeling, and he steps into heaven's realm on his knees in prayer and begins to align the upper story and the lower story. He, what he, and when he does that, what he's doing is he just, he's adjusting the lower story, his story, with God's story. In other words, you've shown me, God, what's going on. I feel the pain. What do you want me to do about it? This is no quick, momentary prayer, and he goes on with life. We're going to read just on the next page. In my Bible, it's the next page. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, in the month of Nisan. That's three to four months later. So he carries this burden for quite some time, and he does some strategic things during that period of time. But first, he clarifies, he prays, he mourns, he fasts, he confesses. He puts himself in a position with God for God to use him. So he clarifies this who in, in chapter 6, or chapter, verse, chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant, the, the prayer your servant is praying. In other words, who's his who? He's a servant of the Most High God. When we get that straight, everything else starts to fall into sequences, into line. So he's a servant of the Most High God, uh, praying before you day and night. Now that's pretty intensive prayer, right? When's the last time you prayed day and night? Sometimes I pray day or night, but I don't always pray day and night, right? Uh, but that means for, for three months, he prayed an awfully lot. He spent a lot of time uh, on his knees and a lot of times trying to hear precisely what God was asking him to do. So he was processing the pain that God had laid on his heart, the pain of others that he'd heard from others, and the pain of heaven in prayer. And he clarified his who. Then he went looking for rainmakers. When you have a burden, I don't know about you, but my first question is, how am I going to do this? I'm just a little boy. <laughs> I have no resources. I can't do anything about this. But if God's put it on your heart, guess what? God's probably going to put resources in your life. So you need to start knocking doors. So what doors do, does Nia Nehemiah began to knock. Remember the Matthew principle, ask, seek, and knock? That's in the, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. That's not a by-the-way request. It's an intentional, repeated, enduring request until you get what heaven has asked you to seek, right? So we go to a, a chapter 2. Uh, well, at the end of chapter 1, let's look at uh, verse 11. It says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. In other words, he's got other people praying with him too, right? So don't do that. We're never called to be lone ranger uh, in, in our ministry, in our service. Uh, give your servant success today by granting him the favor 
in the presence of this man. What man? I was the cupbearer of the king. If you're a cupbearer of the king, your, your full-time job is making sure the king stays alive. Because guess what? If the king dies, you're next. Because you've, you've failed your job. The cupbearer, his job was to taste the wine, to eat the food that is likely to contain poison to eliminate the king. Literally, at every meal, at every banquet, at every moment, you're taking a bullet for the king. So you, the king and you become pretty close, right? Because the king wants you uh, to live. Because he doesn't like to miss a meal. And he'll miss you, I guess, right? So that the so it's important when you are the cupbearer that you don't come into the presence of the king with a sad face because if you have a sad face, what do you suppose the king's going to assume about your presence? That you might have done something wrong. Like maybe today you're not going to take the bullet for him. Or maybe you have participated somehow a deception that's going to result in poisoning the king. So you want to come to the king with confidence. You don't want to create any lack of mistrust because it's not healthy for you, right? But Nehemiah has a trust relationship with his king. And the king sees the sadness on his heart. It says, I was very much afraid in verse, uh, uh, the, the last part of uh, verse uh, 2. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, my king, live forever. Why should my face not look uh, so sad? When the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. This isn't the first time Nehemiah had thought about what he was going to say to the king. He'd already prayed for favor with this man, right? But he didn't say, but I guess I'll wing it. In those three to four months he'd been praying, don't you suppose he'd been formulating a plan? This is what I would call his elevator speech, that very pithy, shortest version of what you need. When somebody, we meet somebody for the first time, they ask you what you do, or you find somebody who has a resource that you might need, when they ask you what you need or you want, you want to get it into the shortest possible detail very clearly so that they can, you can identify whether they are a person of peace with you or not. And if God has drawn them into this conversation after that kind of work, they'll ask more. Guess what? Peter reminds us to be ready to give an answer of anyone who asks a reason of the hope that is within you. And that's what Nehemiah did. He had been prepared for three to four months through day and night prayer. He knew exactly what, how to answer the next questions. Don't you suppose that Nehemiah had seen the king go through this over and over again? People coming, oh, king, would you grant your request? What do you want? I don't know, but uh, maybe some gold? Uh, how much? I don't know. How much you got? I don't know. The cat would wear the king out, and I imagine that would not end well for the requester for wasting the king's time. So here we see Nehemiah respecting the king, honoring the king, but asking the king very specifically for what heaven has laid on his heart. And guess what? Heaven gives him favor. So, uh, and in that process, what he's done is align his lower story with God's upper story. So the next thing, uh, in that process of dreaming, after the process of dreaming, he begins to take action. And we see in, in verse uh, 10 of chapter 2, uh, he had already laid out the resources that he needed. He needed People, materials, authorization, uh, safety, all those kinds of things. Just the, every, every project needs those kinds of things. And the king had given him the letters uh, for all those kinds of things and sent a guard with him. Uh, but what do you suppose the first thing happens when you decide to do something good? Everybody rallies around you, right? No. 
But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about the city, they were very much disturbed. What was wrong with them? This was a good project, right? Isn't it interesting that every time we do something for God, every time we get aligned with God's story, that almost the first thing we hit is a wall of criticism, confusion, doubt, and opposition. Now, if you've aligned yourself with God in months of day and night prayer, what do you suppose should be your response to criticism and opposition? Giving up or continuing on? I vote for the latter. But that's because God has given you your marching orders and you know what heaven's desire is, you know what heaven's will is, and you're not going to take orders from any discouraging naysayer, correct? I like that. I was hoping somebody would say amen to that because that's what I'm saying. That's absolutely what I'm saying. Uh, so uh, the next step in verse 10 is, after the, after the criticism was, in verse 11, I went. It's simple. I went. In other words, he took the next step. I went to Jerusalem. After staying there three days, I set out during the night and with a few men. So he went to Jerusalem. Uh, he uh, took a, 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 a quick tour to evaluate, and that's the next step, uh, step four, is evaluate to, to find the facts. Uh, he began to analyze to see whether the actual circumstances on the ground matched those which he had imagined back in Susa. In other words, he was taking inventory. He had resources. Did these resources match the need? So in the middle of the night, with just a few good men, probably the men he brought from Susa with him, he began to, in the dark and the threat of the night, ride around the rubbled walls of Jerusalem. Imagine what that might have looked like. It was dangerous because rubble is kind of dangerous itself. But there was no protection. There were no people guarding the walls. And the discouragement that can happen because what he saw was rubble after rubble, and then rubble that wouldn't let him by. And that rubble had the stench of fire from 70 years earlier. It was stained with the, the soot of fire. Even in the dark, this would have been visible. It would have been very discouraging. How can we build out of this rubble? But it was out of the rubble that his project was to succeed. So when you see things, rubble in your life, guess what? Those are building blocks. Scars, the, the scars that are on the stones of the rubble can remind you of what once has been and what yet will be. So if it's God's project, be ready uh, to pivot. Align, you analyze the project to see if it matches and you're ready to pivot. One thing I learned a long time ago, I'm an engineer. I like straight lines. I like short distances. I, think, I like things very precise and, and things very efficient. Guess what? God's not like that. That's just me. It's not God. I have found that for God, the shortest distance between point A and point B is often like this. What that means is, as we travel from A to B, we have to make adjustments through prayer, through repentance, confession, and realigning ourselves with the will of God until finally he brings us into the destination. For him, the journey is the reason for the destination. So when we get there, we're aligned with him. So don't be afraid of the distractions on the journey. And don't look over your shoulder to the past. Just keep realigning yourself with God's called purpose. And you'll get there. It's God's job to make sure you get there. So don't give up on that. Then he began to cast the vision after evaluating. 
in, in uh, 17 of the second chapter, we see, uh, then I said to them, these are the people who lived in Jerusalem, you see the trouble we're in in Jerusalem. In other words, I helped them identify the problem. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. And I told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. First of all, he kind of, finds it interesting. He gives himself credibility by helping reveal, by revealing what God had already told him and that the king had bought into it. Because if you are a people who are under somebody else's rule, there's two things, well, probably most of us would just go, what's the king going to say about this? But he's affirmed God's hand in it and the king's hand in it. It releases them from fear and helps them step in, into this. So God's uh, project is here already uh, on their heart. Now they're released to do it. So he's casting this vision. He's giving them, giving them their, their what, and he's inviting them to participate and is sharing the success with their response. Well, anytime you do that, what can you expect? A bunch of whiny butts, right? Yeah, whiny butts. Uh, let's look at 19a uh, in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 19a says, But when Sanballat heard, guess what? He didn't like this idea. So this whiny butt began to, to, to mock and to ridicule and to threaten. What did uh, Nehemiah do? He recalled his what and reminded them of their who. He says, I answered them saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start building. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Anytime you align yourself with Israel, you can expect this kind of opposition. And guess what? Since we are somewhere near the end of Israel's story, we're part of Israel. Israel's story is how we got here. Israel is the delivery system for our story, and it isn't over until Israel, along with us, welcomes back this uh, high king from heaven into this territory. So we recall the promise. They knew what they were. They knew their what. They knew who they were. And they be, as he began to share and cast this vision, then then he came to engagement. There's always a point where you gotta. After you've done, you've taken action, you've got to engage. You've got to do the dirty, filthy work that's involved in getting the job done. You gotta have a, he's already had the plan. He's evaluated the plan. Now he's got to work the plan. The position, he's positioned the resources, and he's built the team. And guess what? He's built the team out of stakeholders. If you read this section in Nehemiah, you find that what he's done at each, each place along the wall He's tasked the people who live behind that section of the wall to build that wall. Guess which part of the city you ought to build? Maybe the part you live in? There's times that we might have, uh, it doesn't do any good to go build some other part of the city if your city, part of the city is in ruins, right? So the next thing he did was link arms between neighbors. So the neighbors began to build one section, then the sections worked out, went out from there, and finally all the sections were joined together. No one job was too big. It was a big job, but it wasn't the overwhelming job of building all the wall. All I got to do is build that little section of wall. I can do that. And God has raised up neighbors for, to ally with you to help you join that wall together to a mighty fortress. Why are walls so important? What's so, who cares about walls? Without the walls, without the security that walls provide, there's no commerce. This is all about business. 
This is all about the marketplace. This is all about what they do in the time they're not at the temple. The temple stands in the middle. The walls will protect the temple, will protect the worship. But when they've gone through worshiping, what are they going to do? Nobody lives in the city because there's no security. Without security, nobody lives there. Nobody does business there. They can't buy, sell, and they can't grow. Guess what? There's no ties coming into the temple. So the temple will soon lie in ruins. Worship lacks because the marketplace failed. So I'm telling you, as somebody who's involved in the marketplace and talking to those of you who are in the marketplace, the place where you come and go, where you live and do life and impact culture, you are, are exactly in the right place. All you have to do is align your, your, uh, your who and your what with, with heaven and you'll all of a sudden know what your job is. So after building a team, finding the stakeholders, assigning the task, they built the walls, they hung the gates. They didn't have to regroup every once in a while. I struggled with it to say they had to regroup unexpectedly. But the truth is, you should always expect to have to regroup. That way you won't let that sap you of the energy. When you come to, remember the, the, the journey is not a straight line between two points? When you come to a distraction, say, oh, I know what this is all about. It's time to realign. So don't get discouraged. Don't look over your shoulder about what you missed or what happened. Look forward in who you are and to what you're going to do from there on. Don't waste all that energy. That's the success to life. So you align yourself with who you are, what you do, and why that matters. And you make progress. And in 4.9, we are called to get our butts to work. Look what he says in uh, 4.9. He says, but we prayed to our God and posted the guard day and night to meet the threat because the threats never stopped. Just because you're working for the kingdom of heaven doesn't mean that the threats will stop. You are the light of the world. The light of the world is in you. When you light up in the darkness of the world, don't you suppose that makes you an easy target? Why do you think the bugs come to you? It's because they recognize the difference. It's easy for them to pick you out in, in, in a world of darkness. So don't be confused by opposition when you've bathed that, your, your what in prayer. When you know what, what you're about, that it's aligned with God's story, don't let opposition waste your time. So you've got you to gotta know your own strength, and you've got to pay the price to do what it takes and withstand the opposition that's engaging. And then finally, don't forget who you are and where you've come from. You've got to care. See, one of the things that when we get into busy projects, particularly busy church projects, sometimes we have a tendency to want everybody just to suck it up, forget their private life, and come on. Church projects, if, if they irritate you because they're not highly efficient, guess what? It's okay that they're not efficient. I know that they can still be irritating to some of us. But the truth is, we've got to take the time to make sure we care for everybody who's on the journey with us because sometimes the burden we're trying to cure creates a burden for those who are helping us. So let's never lose sight of the needs that each of us have. Make sure we all go together. No, nobody left behind. No stragglers. Nobody getting picked off. No lunch for the vultures, okay? So in verse uh, 9 of chapter 5, it says, So I continued, what are you doing? Well, they, the... the they had found those in their midst who had no commerce, had no income, had, had no security, had no food, but they were still being taxed. 
and they were asked to work. And they came and they complained to Nehemiah and says, what are we to do? What, what we're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? When you're doing God's work, be very careful not to become your enemy. Don't do what the enemy would do. The enemy would devour and consume. We are those, we are community, we do together. So when we've linked arms, we're not going to abandon one another because of illness, because of lack of resources, those kind of things. We're going to fill in and fill that gap as we fill the gaps in the walls. Does that make sense to you? So don't become like our enemies. So that's the seven steps, right? So here we go. Let's take this thing home. We've only got about an hour and a half left. You see the sweat break out on Casey's head right there. Uh, let's take this thing home. They built the wall in 52 days. Our country, the might of our country, couldn't have built that wall in 52 days. 52 unskilled, unresourced days, and the job was completed. The gates were hung. One of the powerful results of Nehemiah's work and the obedience of the people who worked with him was found, is found in, in chapter 13, verse 12, where it says, All Judah brought the tithes of the grain, new wine and oil, into the storerooms. Do you know what that means? That means it's about commerce. Tithes are out of the excess, out of the pro- they're the profit, out of the result of operating in security and peace. God had blessed them these months later with crops, which brought in tithes to the storehouse. So the temple was cared for, but it also meant everybody else was cared for, and they could bring their tithes because they could depend on God for whatever more they needed. They didn't have to hold on to that little percentage. God had given them what they already had, and he could give them more when and if they needed it. Anytime their project was aligned with God's project, anytime their story was aligned with heaven's story. So you got to know who you are, you are the servant of God. What you do, you do, you bring heaven's will to the earth's territory around you. And why do you do it? Because God deserves the glory. Did you do that? Let me pray for you. So, Father, I just pray for each person here. I pray that you would open each heart here, that you would invite each heart to engage in the culture that's around them. Would you give us courage would you help us to see the resources would you help us to put in the the night and the day prayer to understand the pain that's on your heart for our neighbors and for our neighborhoods and for our cultures uh for the places where we go and live and 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 do life and impact those around us father help us to be a glory to your name in jesus name i pray it amen